1: Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast. On a Tuesday, early Tuesday morning, we have another podcast for you talking, of course, about USC and Stanford. We wanted to bring in Dan Weber, and we've got inundated with questions uh, from after the game. We've done two podcasts already this week. We'll probably have to do a couple more just to kind of get to everybody. But if you have any questions for us, send them into the show, podcast at uscfootball.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail, 641-715-3900 extension 816-646, uh, or you can go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page and leave a voicemail there. All the different ways to leave us a question. Please try to be concise. Be very specific who you want the question to because we have multiple podcasts a week. Uh, if you write a whole page, we can't read that. If you leave us a two-minute voicemail, we can't play that. So try to keep it concise. Keep the questions you know dialed in, and we'll do our best to get to each and every one of them. Of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, iTunes.com slash podcast. And wanted to bring in Dan Weber, uh, beat writer and columnist for uscfootball.com for five years now. Does a great job. And we've all been busy the last couple of days. Dan, how are you holding up? Uh, not
2: too bad. Uh, cause you don't want to spend too much time looking back as, uh, that next weekend, uh, is coming up. And, uh, I think, uh, it becomes awfully important. Trip to the desert Saturday now.
1: It certainly does. And, uh, you know, we, we want to get into that, but man, there's just so many people have so many questions about this team. Um, and, you know, what was going on and how different they looked on Saturday compared to what they saw the first two games and how different Stanford looked, scoring six points against Northwestern and scoring 41 against USC. I mean, we have a ton of questions on this, Dan. I don't know. You, you ready to, to answer some yeah, of these? Yeah,
2: I'll try to go quick. I'll, I'll go. A few words uh, here. a
1: it, question. It's hard, and we for Coach Harvey Hyde. We did. We had seven voicemail questions. I did not even get to all of them. We're, we'll try. We'll probably get to four or five voicemails, and we we got at least. I don't know. I didn't even know how many emails we've been trying to go through. So it's just a little crazy. Um I'll start off with this first one and get your thoughts. Ryan,
0: Dan, it's Chris from Delaware. You're your absolute biggest fan. Hard to get happy after that one. I am depressed. I'm not myself. I I can't sleep. Nothing tastes good. My two wonderful, adorable children have become obnoxious and irritating, especially the three-year-old. All all I want to do right now is sulk, and all she wants to do is talk about a pony she saw at a store that sparkles, or I don't even know. I just just want to say, kid, look – sparkling ponies, we, we don't have a run defense right now, and you're talking about <laughs> sparkling pony. There's a famous axiom. Too many Chiefs, not enough Native Americans. Well, this team has too many Lamborghinis and not enough Toyota Corollas. And if you don't believe me, I can tell you a story about a Toyota Corolla that put 41 points on us at home with a broken rim and a flat tire. My question is for Dan. Danny boy, can you please do that thing where you calm all of us down? Mostly me, but all of us down by saying, if we win the South, then we can, you know, blah, 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 blah. Thank you, Ryan, for everything. The best podcast in the world and fight on. Unless, of course, you're thinking about fighting on up the middle, then <laughs> all bets are off. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I wish I could, Chris. Uh, you said it all. I mean, uh,
2: Sparkling Pony uh, is probably, uh, maybe we'll call that uh, the, uh, the the Sparkling Pony comeback here. Uh, uh, I don't know. I You know, obviously, that's the spin that they're talking about. It's the one thing they gave them coming out of the uh, locker room Saturday night was, look, you still haven't lost a game in the South. You win all five games in the South you're the champ, you're in the championship game, okay, don't let this throw us. This is one game, it's a game in the North, you still have your fate in your own hands. So you can't dispute that now. If you want to look at how they, you know, went out about the Stanford game in what seemed to be every possible way you didn't want to go about it defensively and that's what they did, then you say, gee, how do you take that and go through, you know, the five games in the South and not, you know, stub your toe? Uh, that's a good question. We'll find out a lot this week. Uh, I, you know, I don't think anybody is going to be making any predictions or even attempting to calm anybody down this week. Uh, I will say, okay, I'll give you one thing. SARS teams have had a tendency after these really horrific losses to come back and play well the next week. You can remember the last time it happened, wasn't that long ago, yep. UCLA, and then Notre Dame. So he's been pretty good at this. Uh, he's had maybe some people, some really smart, wise guys would say things like, well, he's had a lot of practice at, <laughs> uh, at this. But uh, that's what I'd hang my hat on this week, uh,
1: Chris. That was a real good one. That was a good voicemail to start us off with. Um, Let's go to Robert, and he says, I'm a USC alumni living in Honduras, and I watched the game on ABC last night. It was amazing how many times the announcers were calling for blitzes, specifically blitzes up the middle, and uh, more when Hogan was just on one leg. The tipping point came when Todd McShay, who is ESPN lead scout, uh, not a coach or analyst, chimed in asking for pressure on the hobbled Hogan. I understand if John Madden or John Gruden is calling you out on national television, but Todd McShay... This was an embarrassing display of defensive play calling. This is USC. This shouldn't happen. What do you think happened out there? The new shorter podcasts are great. Keep up the uh keep it up from Robert. And this one's not gonna be shorter, Robert, because we have so many questions to get to. But but thank yeah,
2: you, uh, Todd. Yeah, Todd, I think he was standing next to me maybe when he was uh doing some of that. Uh yeah, I think people were befuddled on the sidelines. They were just looking and not sure what the heck they were seeing. I mean it was uh it was stunning and and inexplicable. And, you know, the team with the better athletes kind of was standing there and the team with, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the guys that are not known for their great, great athleticism was running all around and, uh, you know, getting a lot done and, uh, taking chances and, uh, scrambling and, and, and making plays. And the other team was just kind of letting them do it. And, uh, Uh, It's interesting, I didn't know that, that, you know, I knew Chris Spielman uh, was second-guessing, didn't realize that that Todd McShay was as well, but uh, I know there were people there just looking and saying, what the heck, even the Stanford people were kind of like, is this really happening? You know, (laughs) it was was bizarre.
1: That's a common theme with a lot of the questions uh, about the pressure and stuff. Here's a voicemail one for you, too.
3: Hey, Ryan, this is uh, Kyle up in Bend, uh, Oregon, long-time Trojan fans. Uh, Just kind of recapping the game. Uh, This is for you, uh, Weber, or Coach Hyde. Uh, It just seems to me we can't get a pass rush with four guys. Uh, We need to bring uh, guys elsewhere, bridges, you name it, get creative. And uh, just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on it after the first three games. I don't really see much of a pass rush without us bringing guys uh, we need to do things differently. And then secondly, maybe for you, coach, uh, noticed a lot of true freshmen in there, uh, playing, uh, especially, you know, kind of on the back end. Marvell Tell, as opposed to seeing like Leon back there. Kind of wanted just to see your thoughts and reasons why they maybe, I know we were going to platoon guys, but maybe, uh, uh, throwing the youngsters into the fire maybe a little too soon against kind of a, a better opponent. We all knew that Stanford was a better team than what they showed at Northwestern but still disappointing. Uh just seems every year we kind of stub our toes second or third game into the season. It's almost like clockwork, but uh, anyways, just wanted to hear your thoughts regarding the defense. We just uh, go back to our just knowing that we are not a team that's going to bring pressure with four guys. We need a blitz, and with all the freshmen playing on the defensive side of the ball. Thanks, and uh, looking forward to this next week. Hopefully, we can fix these uh,
2: issues. Bye. Yeah, for uh, you know, I just think they were getting outnumbered at the line of scrimmage. I mean, very often Stanford had max protect. I mean, they had six to eight guys blocking, uh, and USC, you know, you said bringing four, they weren't often, you know, there were times, a lot of times it was just three guys, you know, the three down guys. Uh, you know, so if Stanford's just up there with six, uh, you know, they're basically double teaming everybody. And, uh, you know, they didn't do a lot of twists and stunts and, uh, you know, unusual, you know, bringing people from places you maybe don't expect and all of that. And, uh, you know, they just uh, allowed Stanford to, to, you know, Hogan to play pretty freely uh, with the thought that even if they do come after him, uh, they'll possibly be – it was obviously, you know, fairly quickly that, uh they're going to get out of contain. If they really try hard, uh, somebody won't have the uh, quarterback contain edge. And they won't be in their lanes, and he'll be able to beat, you know, one guy on his own. Uh, and so, you know, USC pretty much ended up this looked like standing around and and playing it safe, and uh, you know, playing a lot of zone. I was I was shocked a little bit that we really thought we were going to see a team that was going to play a lot more press coverage, a lot more athletic coverage, with the thought that if you're up on the line of scrimmage. Uh, with the corners, for example. And, and doing that against a team that doesn't have any speed burners, they're not going to beat you deep. And Hogan, you know, that's not the kind of quarterback he is anyway. So if uh, you're already on the line of scrimmage and they're running the ball and you're in press coverage, you've got run support from those DBs. But if they're back in, uh, in you know, fairly deep, uh, you know, zone coverage, you don't have that kind of run support. And Stanford was getting to the edge. They had the uh, you know the numbers up front. The USC linebackers kind of just sort of disappeared a little bit. I mean, you didn't see exactly where they were much of the game, and uh, without getting the run support from the you know the corners, uh, Stanford had an you know an edge. They would get McCaffrey up there before USC had anybody uh, you know to turn him back, and uh, it just seemed like Stanford had the perfect offense. To run against the defense, USC was throwing at him. I mean, USC didn't didn't do almost anything right in terms of stopping the run game, and certain terms of stopping the pass game, and in terms of containing the quarterback. I mean, it was a, a kind of a you know a misfire on every single you know level uh, of the defense. And uh, you know what do you say when when you get it all wrong? And he pretty, pretty much got it all wrong. I mean, they got outscored 31 to 10. With four minutes to go, you know, in the second quarter, they're up 21 to 10. And from that point on, they get outscored 31 to 10. How can Stanford possibly, you know, score 31 points in, what, 34 minutes? It's Stanford. In a North. I mean, we can say, oh, they're better than they played against Northwestern. Northwestern didn't let Stanford play better. They took things away from them. They weren't outnumbered at the line of scrimmage. They played aggressively. They came after Northwestern. They put... You know, Hogan into places he didn't want to be. And Saturday, obviously, he was, you know, running free. And, uh, he's a lot better quarterback when he's running free. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of things there, Chris.
1: Yeah. Uh, we have another Chris. Chris and San Pedro wrote in. Uh, why do we have true freshman Marvell telling the game when the opponent is in the red zone? Also, Cameron Smith and Porter Gustin look confused. Ronald Johnson or Ronald Jones was. In the game on a series or two, backed up into our own end when Madden tore up the first drive. Trey was quiet the rest of the game. What is the point in a critical game or at least critical situation uh, of the game? Uh, we have a, we can have all the juju's and adories in the world, but if we don't win the game in the trenches, we will never return to the elite. And we aren't winning the game in the trenches against anyone who is any good. Chris and San Pedro.
2: Well, I, I wouldn't say that on offense. I think that offensive line, uh, you know. Get a decent enough job. They I mean, got better enough. Uh, there, there is a lack of physicality that you would like to see. This is not a team that just seems to maybe yet value or pride itself on its just ability to stuff people. I mean, they just, you don't get that sense that they, I think they reflect their head coach a lot. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a team that, you know, there are advantages to having the majority of the coaching staff ex quarterbacks. There might be a disadvantage having the majority of the staff ex quarterbacks, and this might be one of them. Uh, certainly, the the D line, as much as we you know people have been picking on them, uh, they weren't in a very good place. They were outnumbered all night long. They were double teamed all night long. They uh, you know they were you know not really geared up. To to match what Stanford was bringing at them. So, uh, uh, but does there have to be more emphasis on physicality? I mean, you know, Sark talked about it, that they got to win those one on one battles. I guess the problem was a lot of times those were one on two battles. And, uh, you know, Leonard Williams last year on one leg was able to beat the double team. But Leonard Williams wasn't there. And this year they were going to do it as a team. They were going to do it with schemes and they were going to do it with aggressiveness and and all together. And we didn't see any of that. That's, I think, the most disappointing thing about Saturday night, that we didn't see what we kind of thought we were going to see and we were kind of told this is what you're going to see. And that didn't seem to be there.
1: Some of that rotation stuff that Chris and Pedro wrote about, too, I thought it interesting that they brought in and the USC second drive, they were backed up. And they, and you know, Trey Madden was running great and they, they take Trey Madden out of the game and they put in Ronald Jones. And it was kind of like, I'm not really sure that was the best spot. And USC ends up, I think it was three and out and end up punting away. Um, that was, that was kind of curious to me. Um, but the, the Port Gustin thing, I thought he played well and Tarek actually wrote in. He said Port Gustin was one of the bright spots this week. Will he be getting starting snaps in the coming week?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't know that they're the value of, you know, starting and, and all that. I think it's a total number of snaps, I do think, actually, that's one of the better things, and I didn't get to it in the last answer. I think that's one of the better things they've done is, is bring those freshmen in and give them, you know, important time, uh, you know, to be able to, you know, get, you know, you get a Ronald Jones in there, you know, quickly. And I think the thought with Ronald Jones is, do you pop him? Do you get him? You know, did he get that seam? And he almost had one. And, uh, you know, do you get that seam, get that, you know, score? that changes the whole game around. And so I could, you know, I could see them doing that. Uh, You know, I think they really like, you know, Marvell. I think they're, you know, they're getting guys ready to play. And uh, I think sometimes we look at them and say uh, it's because they're freshmen and it may be some other reason that, you know, something didn't happen when they're out there that, uh, you know, they didn't get enough pressure on the quarterback that they're letting that you know, tight end, run some kind of a crossing route with nobody in his face and uh, catch the ball right, you know, right in front of, uh, you know, a safety or whatever. Uh, I just think, uh, I don't think it's that they're mishandling the freshmen or using them too quickly. I just think that uh, uh, it, it's more something where, you know, the entire team is, is affected as opposed to, you know, just the freshmen. I think if you got to watch him in practice, there's not much. There's no different. It's not like oh, he's a freshman. He's uh, you know running behind this guy because he really doesn't know you know what he what he's doing out there. I, I don't I don't think that that's the case. And I, I do think it'll pay off in the long run. And it should have paid off the other night. There's no excuse for for giving uh, you know Stanford that many points. And USC should have scored more points than they did. They still should have won that game. And, um, and, and those freshmen would have really gotten, you know, some, some valuable experience.
1: You know, you were talking about the physicality. Uh, we have one from Phil. He says, Aloha from Hawaii, Peristyle. And his, he wrote this during the game. He said, I'm watching the game, two minutes left, down by 10, and I have one, uh, blaring question. Please tell me how the dire need to increase the physicality on this team will be addressed. Thanks. And I hope we come back to win this one, Phil. Uh, it didn't happen, Phil, sorry, but maybe Dan can address some of the physicalities.
2: <laughs> yeah, Phil, I don't, that's a really good question. I think that's, uh, one would hope that there's really been a lot of thought about that and a lot of talk with the coaches and the players and between the coaches and one another and the, between the coaches and the player where they really have figured out what do we have to do, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, you got Tuesday and Wednesday, basically, uh, how do we uh increase the physicality and uh the, you know it, they've been playing fast enough in practice, whether they've been physical enough in practice we don't get i mean we have the most of the sideline now, but we still don't get to be up close uh that much with the the uh offensive defensive lines. We don't get there as far away as you can be from us, and it isn't easy you know to pick up on on the physicality it doesn't look like they're doing enough in those areas and and you're not probably taking big injury risks when you uh really go hard with those guys in practice that, that you know the, the open field stuff and the team stuff and the 11 on 11 stuff you know that you know if you're you're doing live tackling and all that then you're going to you know good chance of getting somebody you know, hurt, but, uh, in the, you know, the one on one or the, you know, half line blocking and that kind of thing, uh, I would think we're going to see a good bit more of that and a good bit more emphasis on, on winning those battles. I mean, on both sides of the ball, uh, but, uh, I think they really have to work on it. They have to work on technique. I think they're, uh, I, I would like to see more, you know, use of their hands on the, on the D line, for example. Uh, I'd like to see more awareness on the O-line. There were a couple of times where guys just didn't see where the guy, you know, like on a screen pass, and they just didn't pick up where the defender was in in relation to the, the guy, you know, the receiver and the ball carrier. And uh, I think there are some alert issues playing with your eyes that we're not seeing enough of on the offensive line. And the defensive line just doesn't seem to be, you know, doing enough, individual things and playing just, you know, like it really, really matters if I get there where, you know, you don't want guys always focusing on, you know, themselves, but, uh, a lot of the, you know, pass rushes is, is just want to and figuring out a way I'm going to get there. And, you know, were they put in a good position to be able to do that? I don't think so, but still, you know, you have to figure out a way to, to make that work for you. Against those kind of numbers, it was a, it was a difficult challenge for those guys. Uh, they weren't very happy talking to the D-linemen after the game. They were in a little bit of a state of shock as to how that game went and why it went that way. And we didn't get from a lot of people, we didn't get a whole lot of answers. As We, we heard what went wrong over and over and over again. We didn't hear why. Yeah, and this week they've got to figure out the why and and make it not happen again.
1: All right, let's go back to the voicemail. Here you go. Randall in Dallas,
0: and my question is for Dan. I've noticed the offensive line for Stanford had four out of the five uh, being seniors, and now defensive front, uh, even though they were seniors, uh, this group has maybe played together one year as opposed to Stanford's offensive unit Probably being together for two to three years. How much of an impact do you think that had where they were able to, to play together and recognize the mismatches that they're making? Uh, I hope everyone calms down and then gets off of Sark's neck. Um, possibly he, he does need to make some type of changes, but he's done pretty amazing job when it comes to recruiting the last two years. Uh, what's your take? Talk to you next well, week.
2: Well, I think the, uh, um I think the experience was comparable. I, I think USC's defensive line—it was the second year. A second year for most of those guys, third year for some. I think the same with Stanford. I think uh, they had a turnover last year, but uh, so second year for many of those guys. But uh but, but I think it was comparable experience. I, I think it was scheme and uh technique and, and just believing in what they were doing and knowing that they what they were doing was uh exactly what they needed to be doing against usc and i think for the usc guys there was a great deal of frustration i think knowing that what we're trying to do isn't probably what we need to be trying to do against stanford here uh and if you're outnumbered at the point of attack over and over again there isn't a whole lot you know experience or not uh I mean, there is no reason I don't think in this game for Stanford to look like it had all the answers and USC to look like it had none in terms of their offense against USC's defense. I, I just don't think that was uh, there was anything other than you know they were they were ready to play and to do what they were going to do, and they did it very well. and They believed in it, and USC was not ready to play, and they were not ready to do what they needed to do. And as the game went on, it became pretty obvious, and uh, there was a lot of frustration about that.
1: Uh, let's see. This is an interesting one from Bear Secutor. Uh, which, if any, of the coaches was responsible for studying the Northwestern game tape? If so, what did they attribute Stanford's loss to in that game? Hint, Northwestern blitz every chance they could, so why didn't USC?
2: Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know who was the, uh, the, uh, I mean, I, I think that basically they, you're responsible for the Stanford game, for example. And that would mean you'd be responsible for the, uh, the Northwestern game. And I know they start, you know, early, uh, early, early in the spring, uh, looking at that next year. And one would think that would have been absolutely the, you know, the first thing everybody saw. And what, what it was clear that the way Northwestern played stanford is by bringing people and selling out and not worrying about you know the hogan was going to beat them throwing they took the edge away they came and there was no way mccaffrey could get to the edge there wasn't any edge to get to against usc the edge was there all night and they got to it and um, you know they just basically overpowered usc at every every place on the field that they wanted to and uh i'll try to find out see who uh who had the stanford game as his uh as responsibility but uh yeah i mean it's pretty obvious that uh if you watch that northwestern game there were a lot of things stanford couldn't do cuz it couldn't get to the edge and um you know northwestern is i mean that's the thing a lot of people are are saying well stanford's got these guys and Hey, you know, an offensive line and USC's defensive line, I don't know. And see, they match up. And all I think is all USC's defense, especially let's say the front seven, all USC's front seven had to be was as good as Northwestern's front seven. <laughs> but they weren't. And you can't tell me that USC's front seven aren't as good as Northwestern's front seven. So when you get into this matchup, and how does USC match up? And uh, uh-uh. uh, if USC could be as good as Northwestern was, they oughta, they should have had a chance, and they didn't.
1: Uh, Jeff had a question. It was really long, and a whole bunch of questions in there. I just had to. I want, this one's kind of interesting. Sorry, I can't read all of this stuff. Remember, keep the questions kind of composed and uh, compact if you can. He said, "This year, I've done uh, more watching of other teams, coaches, and how they interact with the team throughout the game." Look at schools like Alabama, even losing to old Miss. Nick Saban never looked scared or worried. The clown across town, he's referring to Jim Mora, uh, never looked scared or insecure about coming back and winning a game. And UCLA was actually down by 10 points in the fourth quarter. And I think the first time in 50 games they were able to come back down by 10 points in the fourth quarter. They did against BYU. Um, every time they put the camera on Sark in the second half, I got the impression that he was thinking, quote, what the hell do I do? To make sure I don't screw this up and we don't lose this game, unquote. When we should be displaying an energy level that says, we are, quote, we are going to stop these guys and come back. That's from Jeff.
2: I think that may be one of the disappointments that, you know, that the entire team, there isn't that sense of, uh, you know, that's what I think they've been talking about since the Notre Dame game, as that that was going to be where this team was going to be you know, in every part of this team that was going to be there. And uh, you certainly didn't see that. Uh, those two scores at the end of the first half seemed to just totally deflate, you know, everything that this team had going, and there was a look about what the heck's happening here. Uh You're right. That has to be the look on the sideline, whether, you, uh, you know, you don't like it when you see it in Jim Moore or, or even Nick Saban, uh, you have to have that sort of sense of superiority and arrogance maybe and toughness and that refuse to lose kind of, you know, and that sense of it's going to be fine. We're going to be okay. We know how to handle this stuff. you got to have that uh, sense, and uh, it, it, it has to get here, you know, very quickly.
1: Uh, let's go back to the voicemail. Here's another one. Hello,
3: Ryan and Dan. This is Jeff from El Salvador. After listening to this Sunday's "Let's Get Over It" podcast, I asked Dan, with all the exposed issues demonstrated during last Saturday's game, and with all the Chicken Little comments made during the podcast, should the long-term dedicated fans, I go back fifty-five years, be more at peace with accepting that the, that it may take a few more years to make the necessary changes? to not take these upcoming games very seriously to help protect us from getting our hearts broken yet once again. Thanks. I love the show. Take care. Bye. Uh,
2: I don't think you could ever take that next game, anything other than the most important thing in the whole world, you know, in terms <laughs> of, you know, wherever football fits into your world. But uh, if you start taking, I mean, maybe there are people who could take the long view. I'm not sure that, you know, I think you can take the long view, you know, after the game uh, and, you know, not let it affect you negatively or whatever. But I think if you're directly involved in this game, uh, you can't take the long view. And there's no reason to. I mean, what's the reason, you know, to take the long view other than, you know, we're not doing this right or we're not doing that right? I think the, you got to get it right. and uh, And you can't accept not getting it right. Uh, and so that's where I get, I get a little nervous that people say, oh, you got to kind of accept this or, you know, you got to accept it in terms of not letting it really bug you in a way that, you know, causes you any negative kind of, you know, situation. But I, I don't think you, you let it, uh, you know, the people who are directly involved, nope, they got to get it right. They got to get it right. Just, just for the sake I mean, we've already had to take four or five years of the long view, thanks to the NCAA and, and all of the, you know, awful stuff that they did to the USC program. And I think of all the kids that went through that program and, you know, some of them didn't get to go to a bowl game, didn't have a chance to play in the championship game, and, did, you know, all the things that happen to USC uh, when you're taking the long view. And uh, the same thing with this team. Cody Kessler, for example, came back fifth year, Really wanted to make this happen. Uh, you know, Trey Mann in his fifth year, those guys, uh, they don't get a chance to take the long view. You know, all they've got is next week and the week after and the week after. And, uh, I think it's not fair to them if someone anywhere near the program is taking the long view. You can't. And they shouldn't. And, uh, there's no, you know, there's just no excuse for, for that. Uh, but take it yourself, I think, if that's the best way. To get through this, I don't, I don't disagree at all. Uh, I mean, if, you know, it's just, you don't want to be devastated, you know, week in, week out. <laughs> but, uh, but I, 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 for the players sake, nope, you gotta, this game is really, really important.
1: Uh, David at Culver City says, I'm trying to wrap my head around what went wrong. I'm pouring over the stats and the only one that really stands out are the third down conversions. USC was four of 10, Stanford, eight of 12. Uh, I guess it's simple. We didn't convert on third and let them convert all night without being able to see coverage downfield on the TV broadcast. Was it so good that Cody couldn't get the ball to the nation's top receivers more? Did the run work so well in the first drive? We just thought uh, it would work all night. Thanks and fight on David and Culver City.
2: You know, I mean, two of those were fourth and third, uh, third and 13 and third and 17. So they put themselves in the jackpot uh, a couple of times with penalties. Uh, I think the penalties put them in a position. That's when you get those unconvertible, you know, third downs, uh, to some extent. So they were four of eight. That's not good. It's not horrible. Uh, I think the bad part of that equation is Stanford was the team that came into the game converting 30% of their third down situation. And they end up with 67% conversion in this game. Uh, so I think the the failure is not on the USC offense's part. I mean, I, you know, you'd like to have a couple of those back, and you know, weren't the ideal play call. But uh, uh, I think the failing was the USC giving them eight out of twelve for a team that was you know three out of ten basically coming into the game. That was the uh, that was the big failure. The failure to contain um, Hogan. The failure to get to Hogan. The failure to put pressure on Hogan, and you know dropping back and allowing guys to catch the ball in front of you, or in the you know the one case with McCaffrey when he goes out on that I don't know half screen pass to the right, and I guess it was uh, Adoree who got tripped up somehow getting over there, and there's nobody within 15 yards of you know the guy who's handling the ball 29 times for Stanford, and he gets an easy whatever it was 10 12 yards with nobody there i mean they're just one of those after another um and so i don't think i would break it down just the third downs or usc not getting them i would break it down to usc allowing stanford to just pretty much uh make whatever play it wanted when it needed to
1: uh all right here's uh greg he said recently you praised sark for challenging usc's approach to game preparation by focusing more on themselves and increasing the intensity of the practices. You mentioned this was similar to the way Pete Carroll ran practices. Do you feel now that Sark should have prepared the team more for Stanford's offensive attack rather than focusing only on themselves? As Greg, the Trojan Atlanta, he said, P. S. You all are awesome. Thanks for the great reporting and for feeding my USC football news addiction.
2: Greg, I think a lot of it I mean, I think the preparation you know, we don't get, obviously, we don't get, you know, into the game plan session. And, you know, they've played uh, competitively. You know, they've gone goods against goods. They've gone fast. What we don't get to see is, you know, what's the rationale? What are you exactly going to do when? And, you know, for example, we see them, you know, out there in man a lot. And then you get to the game and you think, Jeez, they're really dropping off. They're really playing. Say, you know, is, is the fact that they got up twenty-one to ten? Did that change the way you know they approach things? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's very. They're not going to tell us what their game plan thinking is. Uh, all you can do is go by what you see. Uh, you would not have guessed that they were getting ready to play like that from watching them in practice Tuesday and Wednesday, and from talking to Sark Thursday. They were really confident. I mean, Sarge said, "You're we're absolutely we're ready to play." And watching them at uh, uh, the Jock Rally on Friday, they were—you could tell—they really felt good about their preparation. Now, does that say, "Uh "Uh-oh," they were that far off? Because I mean, let's face it: the first two games, it's not easy to know where you are even though Arkansas State was clearly better than people were giving them credit for, it's still not easy to know exactly where you are. And then, you know, I think they thought they had a better week of practice uh, last week. And, you know, whether it's the disconnect between what they're doing at practice and how they're actually calling the games, uh, I mean, we're going to need a little more evidence than this. I thought he had really gotten through. I thought last year they probably, because of their numbers and, kind of Sark's background at Washington, I think they over-game plan for the specific team and maybe changed more than I would have liked to have seen them from week to week uh, and, and not always with the greatest, uh, you know, uh, success. So the idea that they would develop an aggressive, attacking defense that would use its depth of talent, use its guys that can run, Use its ability, you know, to attack you and not give you a lot, give away a lot, especially against a Stanford that didn't have the kind of down the field, you know, passing attack and athletes to really hurt you. You thought, okay, they're going to go after Stanford. They're really going to attack them. And then to see them, you know, get into the game and pretty much stand there and get outnumbered at the point of attack and all that. That was very, very puzzling, inexplicable. I don't know what the word is. Uh, so it looked like there was a disconnect between how they practiced and how they uh, how they played the game. And I don't even know how to describe, you know, what, what you do about that. How do you connect? I mean, that's what I thought was so good with Pete's team. Practice was, you know, the kids all felt like they were challenged more in practice than in the games, but the games didn't look different from practice. The games and practice look like the same thing. That wasn't the case with USC this week. Practice looked one way; the game looked another.
1: Uh, let's go. We got one last voicemail to get to, and then a few more uh, email ones. So we're we're knocking these out pretty good pace, Dan. I love it. Um, here's the next one.
3: Uh, JD from DC uh, with a question for Dan Weber for his podcast this week. Uh, Dan, uh, I'll pull a few punches, but I'm curious: Do you recall? Uh, what the uh, nature of the relationship was between Ed Ogeron and Steve Lopes or Mark Jackson uh, when they were all at USC?
2: Well, I think um, uh, maybe it wasn't the same as as the relationship they had with Sark. I think they were kind of buddies with Sark. I think Ed was his own guy kind of – you know, he he was who he was. He was, you know, Ed Orgeron. He was, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think if I had to say, you know, th- is there a difference between, you know, the way things worked out, I think Ed, Ed was more his own guy, and he would have been um, kind of the way he was when he took over. You know, he's his own guy. You know, he made, you know, immediately opened up practice, turned the offense over to, you know, Clay, uh, you know, had this great relationship with the players and the parents and all that kind of thing. And was not like an administration guy. He was more of a players coach and a coach's coach and uh, you know, the the great recruiter and all that kind of stuff. I think Sark was more of a guy who really got along well with the people who hired him. And they they trusted him and they liked him, and I think there was a sense of uh, you know we can trust Sark. We know Sark. You know he's he grew up in you know he grew up in Torrance, and he's one of our guys. And um, uh, and, and Ed Ed Ed's his own guy. You know it's just uh, and so uh, I, I would and that would be about the best way I could describe it that that there you know there was a sense probably that. You know, that Sark was, uh, you know, a guy who reflected, you know, on, uh, on the people who hired him, that that they had known him for a long time and, um, that, uh, he was sort of the, you know, the USC kind of a guy, you know, and not that Ed wasn't. My goodness, I don't know if anybody, you know, got USC any better than Ed did. And one of the advantages of getting USC is if you're coming from somewhere else, uh, and you can really appreciate USC. I mean, Ed still loves USC, and 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 you know, I think his his a, a great feeling in his heart, you know, for USC. But uh, I, you know, hopefully that helps you a little bit in, in terms of that relationship.
1: We got Ryan in Villa Park. He says it may be just me, but is there a reason why it seems that they ra- they rarely have run plays that go between the tackles? Many run plays uh, were run laterally towards the sideline. Any reason for this? Seems to me that our offensive line is big and strong enough to get a good push forward, or am I overestimating their abilities? I would hope at this stage of their careers, our offensive line would give us the ability to run the ball right down the other team's throats. Ryan from Villa Park.
2: Yeah, I think there are times when uh, they have to figure out exactly what they want to do with the run game and not have... You know, kind of the throwaway plays where they, you know, you get nothing. I mean, that was the big difference with, uh, Stanford. They weren't getting those, you know, plays with nothing. They were getting the four and five yards. And USC doesn't seem to have that ability to, you know, uh, outnumber people at the point of attack and absolutely, you know, not allow somebody in there to get a grab, uh, you know, a leg before the guy gets to the line of scrimmage. Uh, USC, run game, inside run game, seems more of a grab bag than, say, Stanford's approach to it. Stanford is pretty sure when they run those things, they're going to get enough blockers at the point of attack to make sure it happens. USC kind of is hit or miss uh, a little bit more. Not so much last game, but still a little bit more than you'd like. There are too many plays that USC runs that they just don't get the kind of positive yardage that you'd like, even though, you know, they're getting better at it. They're running the ball better. They're running guys like Ronald Jones inside better than, than you would have thought maybe they could. Uh, but, uh, but there just are times when they just get blown up. And, uh, you didn't see Stanford getting blown up, uh, when they ran the ball inside. And you do see USC. And it's an issue and it's something they, they've got to, you know, figure out and not get those. You don't want to be lining up with second and ten or nine. It just, you know, it puts a little more pressure on you. And um, it still, it happens more than it should.
1: Uh, we got one from Justin that's kind of interesting. He said, is bringing in Justin Wilcox, the he's talking about USC's defensive coordinator, such a bad decision that it would get Steve Sarkeesian fired too? Let's say hypothetically that I got a new job that requires working with a graphic artist. And the company that hired me already has a really good graphic artist on contract and it'll cost a lot of money to break that contract but I insist on doing so because I need to use my guy but after a while it becomes obvious that I'm not doing my job very well and the graphic I brought in is absolutely terrible if I get fired and that's pretty much uh, I'd get fired and that's pretty much the same everywhere and with every job so should the same apply to Sark uh that's Justin wow that's pretty good
2: Justin, and, I think that may be a rhetorical question yeah. I don't don't think you need me to answer that question. I think you've got your answer on that question uh, on that hypothetical. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, I do think the makeup of this staff um, might have been, uh, how do I, you don't want to, I mean, these are people and all, I just think, the previous staff was doing such an unbelievably good job. That was the best transition interim staff with a coach being fired in the, in the middle of the year that I've ever seen in college football, ever. They did unbelievably good job with considering the NCAA sanctions, the number of scholarships, injuries, all the things that happened to that team. That was an amazing job. Uh, one would have wished maybe that more than two of those coaches would have survived that transition. And that they didn't, I think, probably hasn't helped USC going forward. And we'll leave it at that.
1: Um, and we, we get a lot of these kind of questions. And, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many tweets about, you know, wanting people fired. And it just um, – uh, fans are obviously upset. I mean, you see all the questions we're getting. I still got a whole bunch more in my inbox I haven't even looked at it yet. It just, it's like a full-time job trying to go through these. But we'll do one last one, and this one's not not very nice either, but I just want to get your comments. Abel says, has the time finally come to bring an end to the Pat Hayden experiment? When asked to justify hiring Steve Sarkeesian, all he said was that he knew in his gut this was the right decision. Well, after one average season, Sark after dark, and another loss that exposes Sarkeesian's ineptitude, how does Hayden's gut feel now? Is Hayden really this bad of an AD or is he a mole sent by Notre Dame to destroy the USC Athletic Department from the inside? <laughs> wow. Neither is a good answer. And he says, okay. more, and he says more along the football lines, this uh, run of immature, stubborn coaches who refuse to adjust, Kiffin, Sarkeesian, and Wilcox, needs to come to an end. I think it should start by showing Hayden the door. Abel. Wow. Just uh, haymakers galore uh, from Abel. <laughs>
2: um, I will say this. I mean, what we understand, maybe is the plan going forward is for for the commitment to be made to the coliseum i mean it's one of the great treasures of sports in America, and you know every way you want to look at it architecturally and sporting history and l a history u s c history and uh probably needs about five hundred million dollars in uh in order to go ahead and go forward and Maybe, you know, host a NFL team or two and a, an Olympics if we, if everything falls into place. And so if Pat can pull that off, if he moves from the day to day athletic directorship to, uh, what we're hearing is, you know, the fundraiser, uh, and the person in the next couple of years that gets that all done, then, you know, I think we can look at it and say, that's great. You know, uh, that's really an important thing for USC and, uh, and and probably not focus on all the, all the rest of it. Uh, we've said enough as we've gone through all of this, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's hard not to like Pat, Uh, and you know, the Trojan that he is and, you know, the history and all of that. Um, as to, um, you know the the gut feeling and all that you know that that was um um maybe not the best way to to do things uh i, I don't think any of us were happy with the uh, the hiring process. It didn't look like an open process as as much as we as you would have wanted it and I've always said that without a doubt, if you look at the history of college football in america u s c is clearly one of the top three or four programs probably uh, uh, four if you if you say four in american history and there's no question about it and usc probably deserves uh you know a coaching search that tries to find a person who is that kind of a a coach i mean i think usc if you have a hall of fame coach at usc if you have one of the handful of great coaches the homer jones in his era the john mckay's the uh you know pete carrolls if you have that guy at usc you're going to win national championships at usc and should usc always try to find that guy yeah and you can say well john mckay was an assistant at oregon and had a couple of rough years to start and that's exactly right it's not you know it's not science to you know to find that guy but did they do the best coaching search ever no that was not the best coaching search and you could say oh you know texas did the best coaching search ever and they got guy strong uh and where's that going you know for the next few years and i I agree with you there's nothing you know that ever guarantees how that's going to go so if you say oh you know an athletic director didn't get that right uh you know it's easy to second guess at this point i wish they would have maybe you know Taking a look at, you know, in a different way, it, and I'm not saying it, you know, would have turned out differently, but, um, um, it's, you know, I would say that's criticizable. I mean, and if that's a word, yeah. uh, that, uh, the way that went about, uh, you know, there were issues at Washington, and, um, you know, was that, you know, in turn, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult to say, for example, we looked at, at the beginning of the year, Athlon ranked the coaches in the Pac-12. The 12 coaches in the Pac-12, and USC's coaches ranked ninth in the Pac-12. Um, whether you disagree or agree with the way Athlon did that, you think probably that USC requires the kind of person who's not ranked ninth in the Pac-12. I mean, it's just it's just a given. So not saying that, you know, Sark can't get past that, Sark can't make it happen. Uh, but I think one of the things, uh, you know, you have to look at also when you hire a coach is who does that coach hire and how does that all work out? And it's all, you know, it all goes together and, uh, you know, he's got some time to to show that that was, you know, that was a good hire and, uh, uh, well, you know, I think we'll all be back, you know, looking at it and, and, and evaluating it. But yeah, it does go to Pat. And, um, uh, y- you don't want to say, oh, here's the answer right now. You don't want to say it's over, you know, it's not over and it's not finished and it's not, you know, fixable. But, uh, it, it's, this is a hard job. Yeah. Being a really good football coach at USC is not a job for ed- everybody it's not a job for almost anybody i think you have to be really really special you know homer jones obviously was you know uh, um you know, john mckay obviously was uh pete carroll obviously was you have to be that guy at usc you really do and um Uh, And we'll see, but it's taken on a lot. When you take the USC football job, uh, that's a a mighty big undertaking and a difficult one. And uh, uh, you got to be ready to, you know, handle a lot of things.
1: Here's a few points, Dan. Uh, Yeah, Charlie Strong, um, jury's still out on him, but Steve Patterson, the athletic director, is already gone. So he's already been fired uh, for other stuff because he was just, you know, it seemed like a. Not very good person as far as, uh, like you could say what Pat Hayden does is way better than what Steve Patterson was as far oh as. Oh my reason. gosh. Yeah.
2: Oh, uh, comparing him. Yeah. To Patterson. Yeah. Holy. I when you, <laughs> the, the stories, I mean, if you guys haven't, you know, read some of the stories about the things that happened in Texas, it's just, yeah. So, you know, I mean, Pat, you don't even want to, you know, think about having a place like that. I mean, the UFC's got a lot of advantages being a private school. Located where it is, the way the school is developing now, the campus, all, there's, you know, the fact that you've got the most guys in the NFL, the most first rounders, the most Hall of Famers, all of that, you know, the Heisman, all, USC's got so much going for it. Uh, USC should never sell itself short. Uh, and um, you know, that can't be. Uh, and so, you know, we'll let everybody make their own calls on all of those things, I think, uh, uh, but uh, this is a, a kind of a tough time, I think, when you're getting ready to, you know, try to figure out what you do with the Coliseum and all that money and how that plays into all the other uh, things that are going on, 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 you know, on the campus and, you know, with the university and where they're trying to put their money and uh, finishing out this $6 billion, you know, fundraising campaign, which at the time will be the, you know, largest in the history of American higher education. You've got a lot of, you know, things that you're balancing, you know, and it's not just about football, but uh, you got to get football right, I think, too, or you're not. I don't know that you can do it right at UFC if football's not right. There are some schools like that. There are football, you know, you can, you know, Notre Dame and people like that can tell you this and that about their academics or, or all the other things they got going. You take football away and it's not Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, You got to get that right. I think USC is another one of those schools where you pretty much got to get football right. And uh, there are a whole lot of things that go into getting football right. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, we're right in a time right now where you don't want to make any pronouncements where you just say definitively, absolutely. This is the way it, it is. Uh, and this is the way it's going to be forever. And this is, I don't think they're at that place, but uh, they're at a place where it's it's really important what happens next.
1: The uh, two other points I wanted to make: the uh, Sarkisian thing being ranked ninth, completely get it. Uh, I mean, you have to look at people are ranking like what you do with the talent you have. USC being a preseason top ten team, bringing a number one recruiting class, people had high expectations for USC, so they can still meet them this year. I mean, they're gonna have to make a run here and not, you know, not lose very many more games if you want to win the Pac-12 South. And I think he could move up, but the problem is with the preseason ranking. If they end up 9 and 3 or 8 and 4, then you weren't, you know, you were you did worse than what people thought you were going to do. So, you usually the the higher-ranked coaches, they take the team that you don't think is going to go as well and and outperform. So, I think that's on the Sark thing. He can certainly move up the hierarchy by uh, You know, the rankings and all that stuff are what people perce- you know, perceive him. But the bar's so high when you're preseason top 10, there's not a lot of room for uh, screwing up, I guess you could say, because you're already expected to be in the top 10. Everyone thinks, hey, that's a top 10 team. If you don't coach them and keep them in the top 10, then that seems to be people point to the coaches for that.
2: Right. And, you know, this is Sark's first top 10 team. And, you know, we got him to six this week. So that was the highest, you know, he's had a team. And, um, you know, that, there might be people who say, uh, man, you'd like to have, if you're at USC, you'd like to have somebody who's been there before. Uh, and, you know, that's a legitimate argument, I think. I don't think there's any question. And yet, you know, they, they did it with Pete, who hadn't been there before. They did it with John McKay, who hadn't been there before. So, you know, uh, it's certainly doable, but, um, you know, it's, Something that people are going to
1: look at. Yeah. And then the one last thing on, on Pat Hayden, we both, you know, we get along with Pat. I think he's a great guy. He's super, obviously super smart guy. Um, we've, neither of us have agreed with some of the decisions he's made for sure. Um, you know, from how, you know, dealing with the sanctions and, um, you know, we, like you talked about with the coaching service and stuff. He's done a great job with a lot of the aspects of the athletic department and a lot of the Olympic sports. And there's been a lot of good things, but what people look at is, the big hires and baseball looked bad for a while. That's it's, it certainly looks better now. Basketball, there's, you know, a lot of questions there. And of course with football, uh, I mean, this is the kind of a make or break year. And then, you know, to, to have that loss, I think that's why people were, the expectations were so high. Uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, there, there's a lot of pressure on him, but the marquee things, all those other things that he does well, people aren't going to look at it because they're going to look at the marquee things like the football coach and the basketball coach. And that's where people are, are kind of hanging their hats. So if you don't do those well, you can do everything else great, and people don't seem to care.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and it, you know, it lingers. Uh, there was the, uh, you know, the issue with the previous basketball coach where he was able to get away with, you know, lack of real, you know, coming down on him for some, you know, stuff that he should have never been allowed to do. And then, uh, you know, the previous football coach who also. <laughs> it you know falls into that category and those were not easy situations and uh i really pat hadn't uh, hired either one of those guys so uh you know he had to deal with those and uh we find for example pat's a great guy you know you run into him uh and uh he just uh, you know always a pleasure to you know to run into pat and to talk to him and you wish him well and all of that i mean i i do think uh you know, he knows he's in a tough situation and, and, and we don't have much access, you know, in terms of really getting to talk to Pat and, and we don't understand probably all the things that are going on in terms of decision making because, uh, you know, a lot of that where you're, you know, involved with the university at, at large and the, you know, the total image and the $6 billion fundraising campaign and all the building that's going on on campus and all that, and, and when you're focused on football and, this, you know, a lesser extent basketball, you know, that tends to be, you know, our focus and, and for most of you guys out there. And um, so we lose that, you know, the rest of the big picture. But uh, but it's never been personal and it's never been, uh, you know, a case of not, you know, liking or respecting or, you know, caring you know, for Pat, uh, that's never been the case. Uh, you know, I think we can disagree without being disagreeable, you know, in terms of Pat. Now that doesn't always happen on the, on the boards, you know, people tend to, you know, throw bombs and call names and, uh, you know, at times, and, uh, that's not, you know, one of the prettier things that happens on, uh, on discussion boards, but, uh, it really doesn't happen, you know, with Ryan or with me in terms of, uh, you know, any of our dealings with Pat Hayden at all.
1: Dan, great stuff. Um, I wanted to, I forgot to mention the top of the show. We went an hour on this podcast. Yeah, sh- not a shorter podcast. Holy cow. I uh, get a little overtime in. Uh, but we got to run into, uh, Michael Moline. Uh, so he's a sponsor for our Tuesday show from Michael Moline Real Estate. So he does real estate here in Southern California and you can go to his website, michaelmolinerealestate.com or call him at 310-275-4688. But he also does stats for, um, you know, USC football, we actually got to see him at halftime and kind of see what their setup is. It's kind of interesting what they do up there in the press box.
2: Got a lot of stats, I'll tell you that. I mean, uh, the difference in, uh, you know, the immediacy and all the the numbers and what have you, I was looking at one. I was trying to think of that from that game the other day. And I was looking at uh, one of the defensive stats for USC. And it was uh, – Breakups, past breakups. Guess, uh, Ryan, see if you, can, uh, if you could have kept up with this without having a, a computer. How many past breakups do you think USC had in that game the other night?
1: Oh, uh, I don't i don't remember any really, but.
2: <laughs> one. Okay. Sua got one. Okay. But I'm just telling you, if you wanted a, a stat and you think, oh, that, that tells you probably a lot that uh, there weren't a lot of those. Uh, and, uh, and you probably would have hoped with this team that you would see more of those. You'd see more, you know, more playing it like an NFL team and more getting your hand on the ball. And you don't, you didn't see much of that. And that's, uh, but I was, uh, I just decided I'm going to go just check, uh, check that one stat just to see. And we had, had one breakup, uh, a pass breakup in the whole game.
1: Yeah. It's kind of neat. They have, I mean, I think there's eight or nine guys that are up there just yeah. all doing the stats and they're printing out stuff. And, and I thought about it too at the post game press conference when, um, Sue Cravens, I almost said TJ McDonald. How weird is that? Sue yeah. Cravens. Why the heck would I say TJ McDonald? Sue Cravens was there looking at the stat sheet at the end. And like, that's basically they're looking at the same kind of stuff, you know, that we are, uh, trying to find out like, Hey, what happened? What, Wow, we were this bad on third downs or whatever. So I kind of thought about that and all the the kind of data that they pump out. We get we get piles of papers in our little seats in the press box every quarter. They bring us more stuff.
2: Yep, play by play and pages of play by play and uh, I mean, there's so much information you almost can't you know look at it at, at uh, I don't know five percent of it maybe while the game's going on. If if that. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's just so much information. And, uh, that probably doesn't help you even, you know, when you're coaching a team anymore. You would think all that information, but it's almost too much information. Uh, but, uh, the game, you know, didn't get down to much information. You know, Stanford lined up and said, here's what we're going to do. And we're going to bring these many guys. And USC said, okay, maybe we'll let you. And that's kind of how that game went. Yeah. And it was unfortunate.
1: All right, Dan. Well, great stuff. A little over an hour for our podcast. Sorry about that. We didn't even get to everybody, so I'm sorry. We tried to get to all make Make sure your questions are concise. We're getting so many now. If they're shorter and more concise and better, we'll definitely get them on. If they're longer and rambling, there's less likely that they'll get on. But thanks again, Dan, for coming on. It was great.
2: Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Ryan.
1: All right, everyone else, thank you so much for tuning in to the Peristyle podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll we'll have Shotgun on this week. We're going to do an Arizona State preview. So I will have more podcasts. Check those out. And here's a message from Michael Moline Real Estate.
4: Transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at Michael Moline Real That's Michael Moline Real Estate.com.